Is it is it coming through my mic? It's coming through your mic, but Mike's mic isn't coming through his mic. Ah, Mike, so sick and tired of that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm sick and tired of Mike. How good of a hockey team the Russians have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sick and tired of hearing how good the Russians are. Screw <laughs> Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Well, I'm drinking Guadalupe Roastery coffee. Dude, mm. I am as well. It's tasty. <clears throat> Dang, I got, I got coffee, but I got to say it's not Guadalupe. It's not the same. I think that Guadalupe's coffee is actually getting better. I I think it oh. tastes better than it did when I first started drinking it. Maybe I'm maybe my palate just adjusted. Do you agree, Mike? Something about the roast to me seems more robust. <clears throat> yeah, no, 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 I agree. I, there's like a there's a special moment when I open up the bag and I just kind of let the smell fill my room, mm-hmm. and that has become more and more pungent mm-hmm. over the years. So. Yep. I think I'm drinking Nicaragua right now. Single origin, which means they don't mix and match, folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just is from a, one plant. This is all from one country, mm-hmm. we could say. <laughs> yeah, how local <laughs> yeah. are we? How local are you talking? I remember I was once sitting in a car with a guy, and we... You know how sometimes you smell a skunk when you're driving on the highway, and it lingers for a little bit? Mm-hmm. And he said, I can never tell... If I'm I, like, I can never tell the difference between smelling a skunk and smelling a bag of really good coffee. And I thought, huh, there are, there is a similar pungency. You would say pungent. Is that the word you use, Mike, about your room? Yes. When you open the bag, there's something pungent and uh, not necessarily good or bad, just a very, a signature smell of whatever that is from nature okay. that, that does that. Do you agree? I'm, I would not compare the smell of good coffee to a skunk smell. Yeah, I'm with Mets on this one. Yeah, right. but I have heard, this is interesting because I actually just recently found out that when Connor eats cilantro, that it tastes like soap. Mm. And that I think you have <laughs> malformed olfactory senses. Is that like how you color say Colorblind, but for my nose? You're nose blind. Mm-hmm. That's mm. a thing, I think. Kind of like red, green, I mean, colorblind. You can't tell the difference between the two things. Is that true that you're, when you eat cilantro, it tastes like soap? Well, I can never tell. You, you probably got this information from DMAC. Is that right? No. Really? <laughs> God, how many people would I have told this? Um, <laughs> Mind your own business. Yeah, it does. I've had many conversations with DMAC about like taste buds, though. Yeah, so he's a it super makes sense, taster. I guess. Right. Yep. Oh, gosh. I am so sick of the super taster thing. (laughs) (laughs) Do tell. What do you mean? You just don't buy it? it's like... What? You don't buy it? It's just a fancy-sounding word to say that... You're a picky eater. You dislike things. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of how I feel, is that I could be... I could have some special gene that makes me like an X-Man about cilantro and my hatred of it, or it could just be that I'm a picky eater, and I think I'm... I'm probably just a picky eater. I have been since I was a kid. Yeah. And cilantro has a strong flavor and smell. So I think I just don't like it. But it does, to me, it's it kind of smells like and tastes like soap. It sounds like you guys are just religious and hate science mm. to me. Yes. Mm. No, that's but actually true. That's a good, that's a really good thing <laughs> no. to have out there. <laughs> Isn't that? Yeah. It's, so look, here's the yeah. thing is I think DMAC has discovered the physical explanation of why people are picky eaters. Mm-hmm. Or, or not DMAC didn't discover it, but. No, I think that's has, fair. Well, he discovered it. Yeah. Online. I mean, he's. Yes. Oh, that's true. That's true. And and so, of course, there's an explanation for why some people dislike a lot of things. And I think this is an explanation of one of those things. So, but I think it was important for DMAC. Yeah, and so, his own self-knowledge and coming of exactly, age. Right? Exactly. I want to support self-knowledge here. <laughs> it made sense of his mm-hmm. story. That's how he made sense of his story. Yeah, he came to know himself better and to become one with himself. A lot of that self-rejection and self-loathing. 
he was able to he was able to have a posture, <laughs> more generous posture towards his younger self by understanding his genetics, his super mm. taster genetics. Yes. Yeah, I think that that actually is mm-hmm. true. So that's a good thing. I want to support that. That is a good thing. Speaking of things, and um, hold on, wait, are you about to get into a thing? Because there's something I want to talk about. No, just briefly, I want to say getting old. Not that I'm old, but I see people around me getting old, and I feel that I'm getting older. And I read Wired magazine yesterday about the future, and that always makes me feel like, gosh, I'm old, and we're <laughs> going we're to look back on this era when all we had was smartphones, and now like robots are driving us around. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be like, what's with all these robots? And I'll be the old person, and um, I just feel that way. And part of it is that I have this really bad stiff neck right now and this has been happening to me and i wonder if i need to just take it more easy in the gym but it used to be when i was in my 20s especially early 20s no matter how hard i was on myself my body the next day i would feel nothing you know you just get a good night's sleep and you feel great you could sleep anywhere you could you know whatever kind of pillow whatever kind of floor or ground i just fall asleep and feel great in the morning and now i work out they lift weights or play basketball and the next morning I can't even open, I can't like peel a banana because <laughs> my <laughs> fingers hurt. <laughs> like, dude. Well, what type of basketball are you playing? By the way? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like <laughs> you're a doctor, bro. <laughs> no, you know, you jam your finger a little bit here. You, you know, you kind of strain your wrist a little bit there. And pretty soon you're just feeling all sorts of joints and muscles that you didn't even realize you had before. So I just wanted to kind of share my misery about that Dang, yeah. man. i've heard that that's the it's the recovery time that is yeah. really the thing that you start feeling it the most you can you can for the most part function at a maximum level but you can't do it consistently like day after day after day after day like you could when you were younger mm-hmm. i'm still a machine don't get me wrong i'm <laughs> unstoppable but i think about tom brady who said he wants to play till he's 45 he just won the super bowl at 41 and I'm 33, and I already feel like no wonder they call people old in the NFL or NBA when they're in their 30s. Yeah, um, you just don't you don't feel the same spring. Not that I was ever very springy. Let's be honest. I mean, but but you're less springy now. I'm less springy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, relatively. Always re- it's always. Can you relative. still dunk, Mike? Yeah, it's awesome. Can it you still dunk in, awesome. your, in your clerics with your like? Your head above the rim? I mean, if I have the right set of bleachers, obviously. <laughs> uh, well, so what were you going to say before I got into my thing? Um, I wanted to bring up the visit that you took to Mundelein. Uh, oh. I guess it would be just under a week ago. Last Wednesday, you came up here. and um, Rob, I didn't even tell you about this, but Connor came up and uh, gave the morning of reflection to all the seminaristas. Oh wow! That's I. You sent some type of like cryptic text message that like alluded to something like that. So that makes way more sense now. Yeah, I think I you think said I, I was going to be the papal, the papal preacher. Yeah, the papal is going to be coming papal up. Preacher, that was it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're like Cantula Mesa, dude. I'm like Cantula Mesa. Yeah. Preaching at Mundelein. Father, sing the mass. So old Bistron comes in there, looking mm-hmm. like a straight up chump, <laughs> and. Uh, and I actually came over in the morning for it and sat in with all the seminarians, um, and listened to his talk. And I got to say, Bisque, it was awesome, dude. It was really, really good. Enjoyed it a lot. Um, I thought you kept it real. Um, what was it about? It sounds boring. It was pretty boring. So far. Yeah. I mean, bear in mind, this is like, it's all relative to how well Bisque can give a talk. Mm-hmm. So it's like, for Bisque, this is pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. He's not as springy mm-hmm. as he used to be. It's the same <laughs> not idea. Not every sentence ended with a preposition. <laughs> Most, he gave the entire talk mostly with like a, a questioning inflection to his voice. <laughs> yeah, just a kind of sing-song <laughs> question mark at the end of every sentence. Because we need Jesus. <laughs> that just kind of it hedges my bets in case I say something kind of off. I, I'm like, I wasn't actually saying that. I was kind of rhetorically asking it, you know. Yeah. So that's and at one point, 
Yeah. At one point, he was talking to the St. Paul stained glass window oh. as if St. Paul was there. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So he got pretty into it. <laughs> like Clint Eastwood. Um, Didn't he do that? What? Clint Eastwood oh. did that at a convention. He had an empty chair oh. he was talking to that became kind of a meme. It's true. No, but the talk, well, uh, the things that he emphasized was he started off with the idea in discernment of guys in seminary that they have a presumption of permanence, which allows them to weather a lot of the roller coasters, the ups and downs of seminary, that everything is in a life or death situation, and that it allows you the freedom to live into your vocation. So that phrase, presumption of, of permanence, was um, one of the main points. And then he talked about, I think, really truly about the reality of the priesthood, that it's not about people patting you on the back, even though that's going to happen a lot, but that it's about being like Jesus Christ and giving everything up so that you can be, you can go so low that you're the servant of everyone so that you can actually love everyone the way that you're supposed to. And um, he compared the priest uh, who views the vocation as an occupation and he he said that they're like semi-pro they're like semi-official businessmen um because they become an amalgamation of a president of a small ngo um some type of like medieval shaman and an unlicensed therapist was that was that the three things (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Unlicensed psychiatrist, but unlicensed, unlicensed psycholo- <laughs> psychiatrist, um, which really the priest is none of those things. The priest is actually a, a shepherd of souls. And so just trying to talk a little bit about the reality of the priesthood. And um, yeah, I thought it was really good, Connor. And the guys, I mean, the guys seem to be very receptive to it um, as well. So I don't know if you thought it went well. Also, if you wanted to say anything on that. No, that's great. It's cool to hear you summarize it. Um, Would, is that most of it? Yeah, I'd say the presumption of permanence, um, that battling the cynicism, <clears throat> oh, which, yeah, leads yeah. To, which leads to this kind of semi-pro religious professional attitude of like, I don't really believe that what I'm doing by entering kind of the darkness and rejection, crucifixion, of the Paschal mystery that that's actually going to bear any fruit. So I, um, just sort of live as if what's really valuable about my job is that I have a job or that I'm doing something important for the community or I'm, you know, like one of these three things, like I'm, I'm running this thing. That's kind of a community organization, NGO charity thing. We have, you know, we provide a lot of benefit to the community and I'm running it. So, here I am in my button-down Oxford shirt, and I'm sitting at the board meetings and the city council, and I'm important. Um, or you're valuable because your people come to you, and you ha- you're good at giving advices. Um, but really, what's what's valuable about a priest is that he's a priest, is that he's another Christ. And in order to be another Christ, you kind of have to your life has to sort of not make sense in worldly terms. Um, so you don't want to fall for that disenchantment that you, you basically have to live as if you believe what you're saying, that um, that everything in this world has been relativized by the resurrection and that nothing is finally important except God. And that means renouncing things that aren't him or don't conduce to a deeper relationship with him. And that means I'm entering the, de- the darkness and the emptiness of like Sunday night after the euphoric morning of being needed and being exhausted by all these people um, relating to you and needing you and wanting you and affirming you as a priest and then entering the darkness of like, no one's thinking about me and my life kind of is useless and doesn't make any sense in terms of the world and not being afraid to confront that um, without medication, without things that you're addicted to or attached to, to, to sort of make yourself forget that. And then finally, custody of the imagination, that it's not just about, like when it comes to celibacy and chastity, it's not just about custody of the eyes, but custody of the imagination. Like, don't let yourself go there. Oppose the thoughts that lead you away from your vocation or lead you lead you away from the commitment or that presumption of permanence. Even after you've made a commitment like ordination, you know, there can still be a part of your imagination that isn't a priest, you know, that you can live in that's not real. Uh, as an escape from 
from that reality of the of the spaciousness, the emptiness of the Paschal mystery. But yeah. just some kind of reflections. I went on a, a brief vacation, uh, sort of not practicing what I preach. I was went to Arizona during the summer or during the during the this cold winter time and went golfing with some priest buddies. But we did have some good conversations about this sort of stuff. And even one of the one of the guys I was with was talking about how he doesn't know that he, as a seminarian, could have ventured into some of the dark places of his own heart and mind um, regarding his vocation, regarding his relationship to God as a priest, if he hadn't, if he wasn't already on the other side of ordination, namely like that he, he was, he knew there was no way out of this. Like we were all, and mind you, this is all colored by like um, a lot of priests that I've known close to me have left the priesthood. Um, some of whom I like kind of understand some of whom I don't really understand. Um, so there's that there's just kind of like the realization of what the stakes are and how that affects people when that happens. It's sort of like a divorce. Like sometimes it's, it makes sense, I guess, like the kids understand why you did it, but it's still a trauma. Um, but like, really needing to know that's why i started with that story about my brother when i asked him about how he dealt with all this stress in his marriage with his kid being sick and all this and he said he just they both know that there's no way out of this so they can have it out like when there's a fight they can have a fight and know that at the end of it neither of them are leaving so they don't have to be afraid of of really getting down and dirty with with what's really on their minds you know and that's what i thought well, what really helped me in the seminary to deal with some of that stuff and to get through the ups and downs and to not be afraid, like in my 30 day to plunge into some of my deepest fears, which ultimately were like, am I worthy of this? You know, I went, it was kind of a strange, um, well, it wasn't that strange, but it made sense. But to me, a, a surprising transformation where in the beginning of seminary, it was sort of like, is this vocation worthy of me? Like, do I want to do this? Will I deign to stoop down and be a priest? to the end of uh formation was like am i who am i to be a priest like when you know once i really understood what it meant to be a priest and once i really knew how lame of a dude i was um how weak of a person i was then that was the big fear was like maybe god will take this away from me now that i really want to do it maybe i not maybe i can't you know Mm. um so being able to go there because i presumed that I'm going to go get ordained to present myself for ordination unless something obvious or crazy happens, like the seminary kicks me out or I die or something, you know, why it's important to have that no exit point, you know? Yeah. That was it. That's awesome, man. Yeah, it was cool. It was weird because I didn't, I didn't have that much guidance to be honest with you. It was sort of like a few months ago I got asked, Hey, will you give this talk? And, I remember, I don't remember anybody in particular that gave talks at those things, except Father Bob Lombardo once. He got up for like 45 minutes or an hour and just kind of riffed. Oh, yeah. Uh, on I the remember that. I remember that vividly. But other than that, I didn't remember too many of these mornings of reflection. And there, he was kind <laughs> of like, um, yeah, the guys are struggling with some of the scandal stuff. And maybe you can talk about how to deal with that. And but I just stuff I was praying about and thinking about what I wish I had heard as a seminarian. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I thought it was great. And especially just your age, it's close enough to being relatable. I mean, to most of the guys there. Mm-hmm. And yet you have like a little bit of distance and experience in the priesthood that it was a nice middle ground where they could say, Oh yeah, I understand what this guy is saying. And also I value what he's saying because you know, he, he has seen a bed. Um, and it was kind of a nice balance there where you're not super duper old, um, <laughs> but only a little bit old. But, old. Yeah. I, yeah, I really like some stuff guys. Dude, I, I have seen have... some stuff. <laughs> um, when you were talking about the, um, not living in the fantasy of your imagination, uh, what, what was the phrase? Custody of the imagination custody of the imagination yeah i i just thought of it again and, and thought of it when you were initially given the talk but that story of therese 
um, with her taking care of mm. the older sister who's kind of brutal to her and just shows no gratitude, no affection, is really short with her. And she's constantly pushing this older sister around and helping her and feeding her and like basically gets nothing in return for it except for another opportunity to love her. And I think she talks about going off in her mind uh, to this like really fancy, elegant ballroom and um, sees herself um, as like almost like a princess and kind of living in this beautiful um, beautiful home and there's a dance and um, all of this is kind of presented to her in her imagination in her mind and she chooses to reject it flat out hmm. because she wants to live she believes that reality as presented to her as is, is God's will and that is always better than fantasy and so even though she kind of has this thankless opportunity to love in front of her um she chooses it even above the greatest of her fantasies to be this adorned princess and instead she chooses to just be like right there in this really you know theresian little way to love this sister right there in front of her um i feel like that story is just a great example of of that custody of the imagination Cause like, man, dude, talk about, especially being a student. <laughs> mm. Wow. Uh, it's really easy and enjoyable to float off in your imagination and just think about whatever, you know? Mm. And so that's actually um, a pretty deep invitation there to live, uh, to live in reality is that's not how they an get you, man. They get you by the imagination. Like I, uh, I stayed in an Airbnb once and I had to make an account and I have since stayed at a few Airbnbs. But in the meantime, you'd get these emails. <clears throat> have you ever stayed in an Airbnb, either of you? Mm-hmm. Yes. So you get on their email list and they send you all this stuff like once a week. Like you want to go to the Poconos or, you know, Thailand or this beach and or do you want to stay in this mountain thing in Slovenia where there's hammocks hanging over like cliffs and these amazing looking places with pictures that you're just like, Oh man, you're all by yourself with just like someone, you know, and like to be around. You just read books and hang out in these cool places. And I had to unsubscribe because it would just, it would totally derail my day. Cause I'm like, what am I actually doing? I'm sitting at this stupid desk answering emails, but that's how commercials get you is they think they tell you this is what the good life is. You know, you could have it just buy this thing. Um, but to really um, oppose that is hard because I don't know. It's a, it seems like a death. Um, it comes very, very subtly to me at night, usually, um, particularly what, like when my roommate Jamie's not here. Um and I'm like, what do I do? Do I watch TV? Do I go to sleep? Do I read this first things article? Do I do this? And and all of a sudden you're just like, nothing, nothing sounds good to me, you know, but I also don't want to fall asleep because that's sort of a resignation to the fact that this day is over. And I mean, what I, what you need to do is pray, but even that, you know, it's not like prayer is just going to make it all better. Prayer is like the, like you were talking about a few weeks ago, confronting this thing called time, this creature, you know, that's what's scary is that you, you do have this time. And when you confront it, that's when you realize um, there's nothing I can do to fulfill whatever desire, even even to give myself desire to do anything, you know? It's like scrolling through your playlists on Spotify or iTunes or whatever. I'm like, what do I want to listen to? Nothing seems good to me, you know? Just the restless heart calling out for something and you don't know what it is. And um it's that's a scary scary place to be um i kind of lost my train of thought i'll leave you guys to pick it up <laughs> <laughs> well but i think it's also a very privileged privileged place to be um because yeah that's kind of like the crooks of it is your heart's really longing for something and so to just sit in the to sit in the fact that you know, okay, so we we say that um, like we have to accept ourselves exactly how we are because that's how the Lord loves us. The Lord loves us perfectly right in this moment. Like Mr. Rogers. 
Yeah. And the way that I live is not always in accord with that truth. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is pretty good. And I know that I'm sort of loved right now. But what if I went out and woofed down a Mondo cigar? <laughs> oh, then things will be better. Um, and this isn't like, of course, and I know you're not doing this either, but like, I'm not denying any of those good things and being able to do them healthily. But there's a time when that comes really naturally and that just like it, it, it authentically springs from, um, from life. And then there's other times where you can feel like I'm reaching for it right now. But I think to actually stop in those moments when you do have that restless heart and acknowledge what's happening, like this has been big for me throughout going through the Exodus deal and say like, okay, mm. I am just looking for something, but I know concretely right now that the Lord truly does love me and that like my life is enough just as it is and I don't need to create anything extra, but that I'm just going to be here right now. And like last night, I just, I'm just going to fold laundry and just kind of fold laundry um, and just like pray a couple of decades as I fold laundry and then read some C.S. Lewis and, and went to bed. But like I could feel, oh, you, you just want to change something. Mm. You are just like grasping for anything really. Um, but I think in acknowledging those things and then saying, you know, what, I want to live grounded in, in reality right now. That's actually a way that we, in a very little way, but that we actually accept God loves me and he wants the best for me. And this is what he's given me right here and right now. And so if I really believe that I'm going to accept this moment and accept even myself right in this moment and like just be loved here. And if I say that that's enough, like I'm actually going to live that way. And I don't know how long I can do that. Like, I don't know if that's just a will, like grip it and rip it kind of thing. Um, but that's, that's kind of what's been going on. Um, and so we'll see how long it lasts, but like the Lord has just kind of continually provided there. Um, so it's, it's a hard spot, but it's a sweet spot too. Mm. Yeah. There is the kind of rip it and grip it aspect to it. Sometimes I, I think to get through those moments where you feel the existential pain of your poverty, your native poverty as a, What's that, John Baptiste of Metz? Your brother, your cousin. That's that's me, man. Poverty of Spirit, John, that book. Yeah. Have you ever read that, either of you guys? It's a little, uh, no. little red book. Um, he talks about how man and woman have this native poverty, like kind of symbolized by the nakedness of Adam and Eve, that in sin you refuse to recognize your total, utter dependence your beggar status before God, that everything you have is a gift from him. We start to arrogate to ourselves property and things that belong to us that are mine in, <clears throat> you know, as opposed to other people's or, or whatever. And so we, we become more dependent on ourselves, self-sufficient and less dependent on God. And that Christ kind of comes to re-establish man's poverty. Like he, he refuses to accept his poverty, so Christ does it for us. Um, which is kind of a St. Francis move too, that whole idea of lady poverty and how there's a cool, in one of his, I think the Fioretti of, of St. Francis, the little flowers, there's a story about how he sees, um, lady poverty in the garden banished when Adam and Eve sin and they take clothes onto themselves. They, they stop being poor and lady poverty kind of wanders as this kind of abandoned spouse until Christ her lover comes back or Christ comes to, to win her and to restore her to her queen status, sort of symbolic of, of that. Um, yeah, that we, that's what I mean when that, and I, I, I don't know if that describes what you're experiencing, Mike, too, in the Exodus 90 thing, like, how do I get through this um, experience of that? Because it's painful and it's scary. Um, but I also have a feeling that by denying it, by trying to fill it with something else, I know that that's not going to work and that it's stunting my growth, that somehow this is a growing edge for me. Some of it is just like addiction wisdom, like get through the day, you know, go to sleep tonight without doing X, you know, without checking Twitter, without having a drink, without um, looking at YouTube or whatever it is you're, you're attached, you're tempted to fill that space with. Um, 
to just have the goal of go to bed without doing that and then start the next. There's something about the reset button. Um, it's like turning your computer off and then back on, like going to sleep and waking up the next day. You feel, especially after not having given in to that, because we've all had the morning after having given in to that thing, whatever it might be, and the shame around it and the feeling of emptiness and the, even the distracted mind, like when thoughts are still in your head, like simple as watching too much Netflix, like the show, the things that were happening in the show or the movie that you watched are just still in your mind, even as you're trying to pray morning prayer or whatever, you know, these things stick with us. But if you really enter the emptiness, I feel um, those things pass, the pain passes, and then there's there's always a payoff, you know? Yeah, I agree. But how do you like, how would you tell someone to like, truly cultivate an imagination then? Because like, you could also insert there, I was just thinking that last point you're making Connor of like, um, I don't know. I mean, whatever. I know it kind of sounds like silly in some ways, but like something about or like the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis have like influenced my imagination, like in a pretty radical way and like how I pray and will think through certain things and they're like, deeply ingrained in that. So does that jump make sense, though, of like, like, how would you if someone came to you or like, well, how do I like kind of positively influence my imagination to grow it? What would you where would you point them? That's a good distinction. Do you have something, Mike? Well, I was just going to say, I, I do think that that is the totally the right distinction because it's not to say imagination is bad. Mm-hmm. But how do you develop it well and also use it well? Like I pray, I use imaginative prayer a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and that's not just something, I mean, it comes easier for others, but you do have to cultivate that. Yeah, one thing that I'm, I'm doing this uh, year, I've started since the beginning of the new year, is journaling every day and sitting down every morning and reading at least one or two chapters of, of the scriptures, just like kind of a continuous reading instead mm-hmm. of the ad hoc, usually lectionary led scripture lexios that I do. I'm just going to like, I'm, I'm reading through the Bible. I'm having an independent um, reading discipline of the scriptures where I'm, I read through Revelation and I just finished Acts and starting Romans and I'm going to do like basically when I finish a book, kind of start another one. It doesn't have to be in order because the Bible's not, really in order, but, um, at least read the books in the order that they're, that they were written, you know, like chapter one, two, three, four, instead of jumping around all the time. Anyways, my point is that that's helped me cultivate a biblical imagination, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's required me to make room for it by not reading Apple news as often, you know, I I guess that's what I mean by custody of the imagination is when it comes down to the nitty gritty like that, um, what am I letting in? What am I letting form my imagination? Cause you are looking out at the world through the lens of your imagination all the time. How you think the world is, is how you see it. We've talked about that before, but it's kind of like a stained glass window. You know, like light is coming in through my eyes from the world, but what I've held in front of my eyes will filter that light, you know? Um, so reading Narnia, reading the Bible, reading books, uh, like those things that that make you see reality more the way that it actually is, you know, instead of cynical, evil, self-indulgent, you know, semi-pornographic, whatever's on HBO now, you know, that kind of crap that can be so alluring and easy and low threshold. I'll just turn this on or... Um, can kind of muddy the waters of your, your imagination, I think. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, imagination's a horrible thing to, thing to waste. Imagine not having an imagination. <laughs> mm. Can't do it. Because you'd need an imagination to imagine it. You get it? I got it. Thanks. Got you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It sounds like you have something ruminating, or at least maybe a follow-up question, Rob. No, no, uh-uh, nope. I'm just, yeah, I'm, I've, yeah, I don't have much to add to, to it, but good stuff anyway. I um, 
am the featured are you guys this is a dumb question neither of you on our instagram are you no of course not uh facebook no no that's awesome (laughs) (laughs) yeah neither am i i'm only on those things well i'm not even on instagram but i'm on facebook and twitter because of the podcast basically dude i'm on email like mad though (laughs) (laughs) that's what i mean about getting old like Literally, I was reading this article in Wired yesterday about the mirror world. It's this new, the new uh, issue of Wired. Do you ever read that? Another dumb question. Of course you don't. Um, (laughs) It's about tech and stuff like that. The mirror world is basically the idea that, um, are you familiar with the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality? No. Have you, (laughs) are you familiar with Pokemon Go? You ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yes. Nice. Mm-hmm. All right. So Pokemon Go yeah, uses uses augmented reality that um, you are looking through your phone at like basically using the camera app, looking at the world through your phone. But because it's filtered through your phone, it adds this little monster or whatever into the world and you can interact with it. You know what I mean? Hmm. So the idea of augmented reality is like Google Glass, which apparently w- was a whole disaster, but they're working on the technology to where you can look through a screen basically or look through some kind of filter like a glass that you wear all the time and out in the real world you will see things like the like you know pop-up things or markers that people leave um somewhere in the world like i'm i'm walking by a bus stop and through my glasses i see a big arrow that says bus stop you know next bus is coming in four minutes or, or whatever um yeah, it's getting pretty close to the matrix in my thinking. Oh, totally, anyway, dude. But yeah, so that's, and think anyway. about the fact that you those things have a camera in them. So the the mirror world is basically like kind of like social media, where the bigger it gets, the better it gets. Better being um, kind of a relative term, or specifically not like goodness in the transcendental sense, but just getting more efficient. Or there's more there's more stuff that it's about. The more people that are on Facebook the more worth being on Facebook it is, arguably. Because um, if you're looking for a platform that has the entire world interacting in a free way, um, the more people that are on it, the better. So the same with augmented reality. If you're wearing glasses that have both a camera and a screen, you're mapping every person that's wearing those things because they're hooked up to the internet is mapping the world. You know, Kind of like Google Street View, You know, those cars that drive around with the little 360 camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, so everybody would be wearing that all the time. That also, and it would also have a location detector, you know, through GPS. So basically, the the little thing, whatever the cloud, is storing all this data about where everything is in the world, and so it can. That is that's the mirror world, basically, and that's where robots and self-driving cars, you know, will be able to interact with the real world because there is a digital mirror world that is basically a one-to-one ratio map of the real world but in cyberspace or digital space. Does that make sense? <sighs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. There's been a lot of movies made about that idea, and they all end badly. I know, dude. <laughs> well, that's what I'm yeah. saying is that we, I mean, social media, Facebook, Twitter, like all these things that have been happening, like with people getting, you know, shamed and fake news and, you know, like the instantaneous nature of how we learn about each other like you one day happens you've never heard of this person and the next day happens and they're the worst person that's ever existed and everyone knows their name and what they look like you know so that we can't we couldn't have uh, predicted what social media with the internet this platform would do to the way human beings interact and we haven't quite learned how to be really actually human to each other yet on these things Never mind what it's used for most frequently, which is pornography, this huge abuse of the human person. Um, so like the idea of a platform like that, the mirror world, and what it could be used for is just, and the privacy concerns and everything, you know, like who's who's watching this thing, who's, you know, because my, my room is going to be mapped by, if I'm wearing my glasses in my house, you know. Um but it's, huh. that's just crazy to think about. Like when we are 80, what is the world going to look like when we're the ones talking about whatever the next millennials are, you know, the Gen Z3. We, that was dumb that we started with Gen X, by the way, because we're already to the end of the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> Gen you know, A it isn't the... starts over, man. <laughs> Gen A, it's just modular. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, it wasn't the most recent one. Their iGen. See, I don't like that. Because no, you don't that's, like it? Well, that's a reference to Apple, right? Like iPod, yeah. iPad. Yeah. Yeah. A, a whole generation being branded? That's that's dumb. Millennial. Well, we were called Gen Y until they decided to change it to millennial. Now we're millennials. Yeah. Isn't it Gen Z? Isn't that the ones like going to college like in right college, now? Yeah. Yeah. My people. Mm-hmm. They're your people. But they're going to be old soon, too. They just don't know mm. it. Bunch, bunch <laughs> of olds. The kids mm-hmm. now in college were born on or after 9-11. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what's coming. I mean, I hope it involves flying cars. I actually think that would be cool. But past that that uh the whole google glass thing that freaks me out pretty good mm-hmm. well here's the thing so i was talking to my dad about some of this stuff and the economic implications because so many people are going to be put out of a job by automation you know like self-drive think about how many people drive for a living truck drivers cab drivers uber drivers delivery drivers if yeah. cars all of a sudden are driving themselves like what how many people are going to be unemployed because of that? And uh, so my instinct is to like think before we leap um, in making these technologies, you know, think about all the people that are going to be hurt by them. My dad makes the point. He's like, well, think about all the people making like leather harnesses and shoveling uh, horse manure before the car. You know, are we supposed to think about them before like people just adapt to the new economy, which I think is fair. Oh, yeah. I think mm-hmm. that's fair, but at the same time, you can, I think the answer to this question is yes, but you still can ask the question, is the world better off with cars or not? I think we are than with horses. I think cities are cleaner and healthier and people are more efficient. But like in that book, Jaber Crow, you remember when he gets a car? Oh yeah. His life gets worse. And like all of a sudden he, mm-hmm. where he used to be so relaxed and not in a rush and never really thought about people being in his way now that he can drive 60 miles an hour. All of a sudden, he's in a rush all the time. Yeah. So I think that there's something about... Why would there be monks on Athos who don't have computers if it weren't <laughs> possible to, that life would be better without them, you know? That is, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we'd get there at some point. Go to Athos, man. <laughs> so that yeah, movie yeah, got Athos. panned by 3 North, huh? Because of the cats in it? Yeah. There was apparently lots of cats in it. Yeah, I forgot yeah. about that. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to see it, though. I really... I, I told you we're going to watch it at the end of DeGaulle's class, but... Um, dang, uh, are we sort of running out of time? I got a little time. I got time. I kind of... I feel like we were on something interesting with the imagination deal. and Not that I haven't enjoyed talking about the possibility of the Matrix coming into real life... Um, but I thought, I thought that was a good question. Um, do y'all mind if we pursue it a little bit? How do you, cause I, the way that I heard the question, um, was how do you actually form your imagination? Well, yeah, I that, think that's what maybe I was, I, the, the one that I ask. Yeah, that right, right. I think it was a super important distinction. Yeah. And, and I think I, I was just trying to follow to, I don't know. It just, it was cool to hear you guys talking and everything. And, I think honestly, it was just like, I don't know, even when you guys were speaking, I don't know, I'm just kind of in a spot like where like just a little veg out time sounds amazing. I had the old uh, like five mass weekend this last weekend, Oof. et cetera, and uh, which was great. Like it, it went really, everything was good, but you guys were talking. I was like, what's wrong with what's wrong with that? What? Come on. I just need some <laughs> veg out time, you know, uh, but I think that's true. No, oh no, I don't. I don't feel guilty in saying yeah. that exactly. I mean, I, it's from a really good, uh, like a really good spot. Um, but ultimately, yeah, what you're going back to is that question of like, okay, well, like, how do you actually form a good Catholic imagination then, like in the here and now? Because you could answer it like to parents. It's like, okay, well, expose your children to good stories and books and, um, 
you know, like beauty, et cetera. And so I guess it's the same, same answer to anyone in, in some capacity, but it can't, it, you can't just all like be the void, you know, like, um, right. it, and it has to, you have to have like a positive approach to it as well to actually form it. Right. It can't just be a, a philosophy of nothings or against, but right. Exactly. Yeah. How do you do it? Well, Yeah. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. And I think there's I think there's room for vegging out. Um, oh, yeah, there is. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think the good rule of thumb for me, uh, I heard this in a Sean Kilcally talk, is that... Um, oh, man, he's good. Oh, man, he's hardcore. He was talking about, um, he was in particular sexual addictions or addictions to pornography, things like that, like why people get fixations on things. Or any kind of addiction, like a substance or behavioral addiction, is because you've learned to regulate your affect with objects instead of relationships. Mm. Where from infancy we we are hardwired to attune to our mothers, and when we get upset or shut down, our mothers kind of naturally are supposed to attune to us and and make us calm down or or stimulate us somehow to you know kind of wake back up to the world but if there's some kind of insecure attachment like we don't we go to our mothers or our fathers or um caretaker figure enough times and don't get what we're looking for um even before we've formed any concrete concept of our identity or have any memory of any of this stuff it sort of gets wired into us to shut down or to uh, stimulate ourselves or to attune to ourselves somehow to to make our affect go from a 10 to a 5 or you know to get back to the middle of where where we feel good or at rest or calm and um so the rule of thumb then is that if you if you do have trouble with attachment because everybody nobody has a perfectly secure attachment or maybe maybe some people do but i don't know many people who don't struggle with this somewhat to uh like have little devices like make a phone call, make like three to five phone calls a week just to catch, just because, you know, to call people, not for any concrete reason. But, um, you know, if you have to veg out, veg out with somebody, you know, instead of like there's a difference between going to see Pacific Rim in the theater with some bros on a day off, <laughs> just some stupid popcorn you know, Michael Bay kind of movie versus sitting in your house like during your whole day off without doing the bravery and watching like 12 episodes of the Ted Bundy tapes on Netflix, you know, there's <laughs> yes, a, there is a difference. big difference <laughs> yes. one, and that both are vegging out, but one is social and relational and um, the other one is kind of solipsistic and a, compulsive. I think that that's sort of like that's keys into some insight anthropologically that we are made for relationships. So even when we've, we're, we're just kind of driven to the point of breaking, we do need to veg or rest or recreate, but always in a way that opens us up instead of closes the loop. Maybe that's, that's a key distinction with forming the imagination. Like, is this opening me up or kind of closing me in, you know? Does that make sense? Sort of like yeah. Chesterton's, oh, yeah. Chesterton's oh, yeah. lunacy loop, the circular logic of the lunatic. How really, you don't argue a lunatic out of his lunacy. You have to. He just has to open his mind up. Um, yeah. do 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 do. Little yeah. Irish flute. Did you have anything else, Matt? Oh, well, I don't know. It's just, uh, I don't know. I don't even know how to really talk about it well without pulling in other imaginative images to, to kind of portray the way that I'm thinking about it. Um, which also, this is a side note, I am like a super imaginative uh, thinker. Like that's that's basically how I conceptualize everything is not necessarily in logical arguments. But I just mm-hmm. conjure up an image that makes sense or an image comes to me, which 
also, side note, is not great when you're trying to write an STL paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like it's uh, that's how it's supposed to be structured, and um, so the I mean the image that's coming to mind for me now is um, actually I think church buildings. Church buildings are um, a cool image of it because uh, there's tons of stuff there. They're full of icons, color stars, crosses, wood, pews, altars, like Jesus, the Father, like all of these uh, vibrant things to to take in and to guide you and to direct you. Um, and so it's not like for a while we took this dualistic approach and just whitewashed everything and said, no, in order to think about God and the sacrifice of the mass well, we can't have anything so that we now we'll all focus on the altar, the center of the liturgical action. Mm. But what ended up happening, it was, it, it wasn't helpful. Everybody just kind of floated off into the ether and, um, it became, it wasn't, there wasn't enough, um, direction or formation moving the imagination and moving the heart in prayer, actually aiding us towards, uh, praying the mass with the priests, and so then it, so then I think that's what a lot of people are realizing now is like the whitewashed nothing, the empty imagination is not what we're what we're saying here, but that we want like a church, we want a mind and a heart and an imagination that's full of the right stuff, that gears us, and and awakens the desire to want to be in union with God and like, uh. Yeah, and so beautiful churches, honestly, I think are a great image or a great symbol of a of a beautiful imagination. Um, things that are solid, that are well built, are well formed, are full of like color and life and story and other people, like all the saints in the windows and um, and Jesus, and and like that's where it's all geared towards. Um, but yeah. I don't know how to talk about that in a like systematic hmm. like I I don't know that it has to be. I mean I, I get the you're like, you know, uh kind of in Does the thick of it writing make sense? it. I think so. Yeah. And I I mean like even the, the thought of like you being kind of like in the thick of a licentiate paper right now, you know what I mean? Like but I, I don't know. I mean the just the reality of like the truth that like stories can can like bring about and portray i think that's really important like well like this last weekend i preached on the gospel which was like the turn the other cheek you know and i was i was just struck as i was praying through it like again and again it's it's just like such a kind of high call that jesus is talking about in so many ways and so i just told like my whole homily was i just told the story of mother Teresa when she took the little girl into the bakery um, and she asked, she was begging for bread because this little girl was starving and the baker spit on her. Have you guys heard that story? No. And yeah. so the baker, she said, you know, like, please, I just need a little bit of bread to feed this little girl. And the baker spit on her. And then mother Teresa, like she didn't react. She didn't react with anger or anything like that, but she also like didn't leave either. So she was just very firm. She wasn't going to be pushed around. And she said, thank you very much for that gift for me now please give me some bread for this little girl. And it like, <laughs> it just, it rattled this baker and he did then. And, um, and then the other story, I was pretty pumped about this one. Do you guys remember the show duck dynasty? Hmm. Oh yeah. And so there's, I read a book by one of the brothers one time, his name was Jace. And, uh, he was telling the story of when they were little, like they literally had no money, like none. So they would just, the only thing they had to eat, was what their dad Phil would either catch from the river or like hunt or trap. That was it. And so they would have to like self patrol the river and because um, there's no police or anything because they're so far out in the middle of nowhere. And so multiple nights, um, Phil would catch guys trying to steal the fish he had caught that day. And uh, Jace would talk about like he, so he would have the boys with him and he would hold these guys at gunpoint. And so it was like an intense situation. And the guy like so Phil would tell him like I don't want you ever on my property again like never try to steal from me again again like at gunpoint serious thing 
Um, but then he would, after he had that, so Jay said this was the best sermons he ever heard growing up. He would have one of the boys bring the men some of the fish that they were trying to steal. And Phil would tell them, like, but if you're ever so hungry that you have to steal again, then all you have to do is come and ask me and I'll make sure you have food. Hmm. Um, and if like, if you're ever in a position that like your family is hungry, all you have to do is ask me and I'll make sure your family has food. Um, and That's I don't know. Awesome. I mean, yeah, but like stories, like I actually think that like hearing those stories allow you to understand that gospel in a totally different way, mm-hmm. maybe through the imagination and like in what it actually is or, or, or like could be. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, definitely. That yeah. was my, always my biggest complaint in homilies growing up was that I liked when pe- priests told stories, although sometimes they they weren't like those kind of stories, obviously applicable to what the gospel's about. They were just sort of, I went to the grocery store, I was on vacation, and this thing happened. Sure, you know those kind of analogous stories where so, it's a real thing that actually happened, but it illustrates what Jesus is talking about when he. He says, turn the other cheek. It's an active, uh, not a wilting lily passive. Oh, it's okay. You can do whatever you want to me because I'm a Christian. It's like, no, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to stand up and, um, not say that what you've done to me is okay, but I am like mother Teresa going to kind of throw it back in your face in a way that's rebellious. You know, like I, I will not relate in this dysfunctional way, but mm-hmm. I will love right. you. Um, but it's like, uh, was Hennessy always say about you can't, if you can't imagine it, you can't do it. That was about priesthood. You know, like if you can't, if you don't see a priest that you want to be like, it's really hard to imagine or decide to be one, you know, mm. um, that was, I really never heard true. Him say that. that was really true yeah. for me that until I met a priest that was something like me, um, or I could imagine being like, or wanting to be like, you know, it never, it never dawned on me that it was possible. But once you imagine it, then you can say, oh, I can turn the other cheek. I know what that looks like. It means X, Y, Z. Yeah. 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 And there's something about, gosh, it's like the the Lord's will, because it, it's kind of presented to you in this future option. And this is priesthood or hearing those stories, because you inevitably ask the question, when have I done this or not done this? Or what will it look like if I actually did this in the future? And like I, at least when I hear those things, I immediately think, okay, what does that really look like in my life? And how can I go about trying to implement or receive this really good thing that I just understood in that story? So you kind of like put yourself in the story. And especially with like vocation stuff, um, you know, you see this priest that you could be like, and you start to think, wait, could I be like that? And uh, there's something sweet about how the Lord communicates his will to where you see that future self and it gives you a piece to it that like this future call that could you could see yourself doing uh, corresponds with the present person there. Like in real time, wow, I could really see myself being very happy and fulfilled in doing that. Um, and I remember that that being my experience of how I realized that I wanted to be a priest I was like, holy smokes. I'm seeing a priest in real time living a life that I could see myself living and I'm not living it right now, but it is giving me a like sweet desire and a very peaceful disposition um, in thinking about I could live this way. Um, Yeah, that's really good. And and even I'm good. Good. Well, it's just like God's will is timeless and it's like we get we get a glimpse into it. It's like you step into that that flow of warm air that that's always there and you're like, oh, somehow the future is already making sense in the present and I want to be there. And so it's like this way that the Lord communicates, um, communicates his will to us. Yeah. I don't know, yeah. Sorry, what were well, you saying? Well, no, I was thinking when you were talking about that of um, it was like maybe not you kind of your driving point at the end there, but I, when I heard uh, Father Sean Kilcally talking at seek, he was just talking about how, like, I can't remember his exact line, but the one that stuck out to me said that like very often the type of priest, like someone is trying to be is the type of priest that they needed growing up. 
And so like if you don't have self-knowledge in like knowing that that can be like that can be possibly harmful, you know, in some in some way. But like to actually I think his point was is like to actually. um, Yeah, to know that about yourself, I guess, you know, that's got to be true about parents, too, don't you think? Oh, yeah, I, I meant and I like that was I can't remember the exact context he said it in. But that's exactly I mean, that's a deep like, you know, you know talk about an unequipped psychologist talking mm-hmm. here uh, but like <laughs> right. but like that is that just seems to be both so like so deep and so true in the human psychology that um like that's just i just heard that and i was like yeah that's true yeah um, dude but i but i just i i thought of it because you were as you were talking that's like being able to relate to it's like well you know i like I try to be like this priest in this capacity because I've seen it done, you know, or that made me want to be a priest or right. uh, for whatever reason. You can insert, you can insert that for anything, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, insert yeah. that for vocations, insert, insert that for. I mean, that's just true as as well. Like, I want to hunt like certain guys that I've hunted with because they're really, really good at it, you know, and make it attractive in some in some way, um, but. I don't know. It went, and so like just the whatever you what was the term like custody of the imagination or something mm-hmm. like that. I mean, just how important that is, like both in. Yeah, I guess maybe the positive and the negative of like. Yeah, where we're like being able to like integrate and cultivate that in in a way that like we're free to actually do what God is calling us to do. And we have these beautiful like images and capacities then to help us like pursue that. And also, I don't know, I think that's just like the truer sense of a self gift. If you can say like, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing this like because I needed this growing up and I didn't get it. Okay, that's fine. And that's not always bad. It's beautiful in some ways. But like that action is about you and not the other person at that point, mm-hmm. you know? Or is it like an outward focus and saying like, oh, no, I know where this person is at. And because I didn't receive love in this place, like I'm going to give it to that person. Does that make sense? Very much. That difference? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so easy to make it about ourselves, huh? I guess that's that's what I meant about opening up, sort of like when, you're, when your imagination's open to the world where it's it's sort of like formed by reality. That's why it's, that's why it's helpful not to live in fantasy because like if I'm sitting across the table from somebody talking to me and all I'm hearing is through the filter of like, yep, this is my, these, this is what I'm bitter about from my upbringing or what's going on in my life. Like, and then I just, I'm, I'm talking to the person, but actually I'm just talking to myself. Mm. Um, versus willing, like letting your mind be changed by what's out in the world, like letting your imagination be formed by, truly this other person opening themselves up to me in a relational way. Um, otherwise my yeah. imagination is just this kind of self, uh, reinforcing loop, um, where everything I see just em- enforces what I already presume to be the case, you know? Yeah. And gosh, is that true? Like, I'm just imagining when you said that you become the kind of priest you think you needed when you were growing up. Same thing about you become the kind of dad you think you needed when you were growing up. And then you imagine yeah. it's hard for you to imagine that your kid could ever be um, anything but satisfied with your parenting because you are giving him everything that you wish you had when you were growing up and you, you can't see what you're missing, you know? Yeah. Um, so they're going to do the same thing when they grew up. They're going to be like, Oh, my dad was plenty fun, but he wasn't really there for me. You know? Um, mm. And mm. His, his dad was really serious and never fun, but he was, Whatever, you know, there's always just some lacuna that you're trying to make up for, but you don't see the ones that you're creating by doing that. That's a scary thought. <laughs> yeah. And then you get into the whole thing. Are you playing the game of um, what What do they need mm-hmm. instead of like, what do I, what should I provide for them? Wait, what, do they need a friend right now? Do they need a, a strong dad? And, and then you start doing the guessing game. Yeah. It's, it's tough. Well, I got to get after it. Go be a priest, dad. Well, this was good, dude. This went all over the place, but good stuff. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is really good stuff. Hey, focus on yourself more today, all right? Yeah. You got to take care of the caretaker. What I'm taking away <laughs> from this is that they take care of the caretaker like that. I was going to say that uh, blood alone drives the wheels of history. but <laughs> Like Dwight slamming on the podium. <laughs> <laughs> blood alone moves the wheels of history. <laughs> Isn't that Mussolini? Is that yeah, well? Yeah. That, what D- Jim's yeah. prank to him was like to print out a bunch of advice from dictators about <laughs> public speaking. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. All right, bro, dudes. See you guys. See you later. Yep. See ya. Peace. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisc, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.